We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. There's much to be thankful for on the COVID front as we begin this final month of the longest year of our lives. In what history will certainly record as record time, The very first coronavirus vaccine in the U.S. is expected to be approved and start shipping December 14th. So the news is really good. It's real and it's good. Uh, There's still a lot of execution. Uh, But this this is upon us. But that news arrived in a week where the U.S. broke the one day record for coronavirus deaths. Here in the tri state region, positivity rates are growing everywhere. And more critically, Hospitalizations have now doubled or tripled in some spots here in just one month. What is the biggest fear? The biggest fear is overwhelming the hospitals, period. That's where we are. And that is a serious, serious concern. This week on 880 In-Depth, the story of one hospital's battle against the surge in one of New York City's COVID hotspots, Staten Island. And just how another big hospital system in New York is getting ready to take delivery of the vaccine. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880. And as Governor Andrew Cuomo told us this week, COVID is shifting the battlefield dramatically. All across the state, from one end to the other, positivity rates are on the rise, and so too are the hospitalization rates. When the COVID rates go up, what happens? The hospitalization rate goes up, and the hospitalization rate is increasing dramatically. Uh, End of June, we're about 900. We're now at 3,500, okay, since the end of June, and that is before feeling the effect of the holiday season. This, my friends, is the problem. Here in New York City, the problem is especially troubling on Staten Island, where positivity rates are ranging from just under 6% to inching near 9%. Our Peter Haskell got on the phone with Dr. Brahim Ardalik, the executive director of Staten Island University Hospital, to find out how things are going there. Well, it's interesting because I think if you just walked into the hospital right now, it, it would feel you you would think that it was uh, status quo. We've been able to maintain all the services. The emergency room isn't overwhelmed. We are able to take care of what we have. The concern is that um, people with COVID who come in who require admission for COVID do uh, 
number one, spend a lot of time in the hospital, and uh, they do need a lot of resources. So um, we have to continue to be able to manage and plan for the fact that they these are folks that are going to be in the hospital for quite some time. So if you walk in the hospital right now, you wouldn't be able to notice it was anything different. Uh, and on our, on the back end, uh, we have to make sure that that continues to be the case, where we're not, where our regular patients that still need medical care aren't noticing a difference. But I don't think you'd, you'd notice a substantial difference. How many COVID patients do you have right now, and, and what's been the the rate of increase over the past week or so? I suspect there's an ebb and flow. So we've been mostly ebb uh, over the last uh, over the last several weeks. We've risen. So to give you an idea, uh, we were we were around 25 or so uh, the first uh, Monday in uh, November, um, and on the first day of December, uh, we were uh, over 150. So we rose fairly dramatically over that four-week period. Um, we have now stayed at that number for a couple of days. Um, I've been around that number of 150 for a couple of days. Um, I think one of the positives for us has been that uh, it's no longer 150 people all within our main building. Now we have uh, some of those people are actually in our uh, peripheral hospital, which has allowed us to maintain the services and will continue to allow us to maintain the services. That peripheral hospital Dr. Ardalek is referencing is the neighboring South Beach Psychiatric Center, a hospital that was repurposed as a lifeline during the worst of the pandemic this past spring. The fact that it reopened this week while a positive sign is very telling. It's a very large building. It was actually built as a psychiatric hospital uh, uh, after the existing structures were damaged during Hurricane Sandy. And unfortunately, it was a very large building that took quite some time to build and get funded. Um, so it was actually supposed to open just around the time that, um, that the spring COVID uh, hit. Um, so we were able to convert it into that. So in, it's, a, it's a rather large structure. In theory, you could fit probably uh, over 200 to 250 people in that building. Um, making sure that you can actually accommodate them and staff them is, is a very different story. Um, we are preparing to be able to take um, um, a substantial number of people in there, in excess of 100 at least in the initial phase. Uh, but right now, uh, as we ramp up, We've uh, we, we have uh, we've pretty much been over 25 now for over the last several days, um, and actually the plan is uh, to go up from there as needed. Um, so it's not so much of a capacity problem. If I actually had if I had the need, I could go up pretty big there, more than enough, I think, to meet the needs of all but a truly calamitous spike in COVID. Which which patients are treated there? I had to decide who stays in the main hospital and who goes to the secondary. It's a great question. Actually, I'd say the great majority of the people that are in the secondary hospital are people that had a course in the main hospital. So when you come in uh, with COVID, uh, you pretty much get divided up initially based upon the severity of your illness. Uh, is this something that can be taken care of on a regular floor? Uh, is this something that requires ICU care? Um, the people that go to the regular floor, um, some of them do quite well. They're only in the hospital for a couple of days and they go home. Uh, but to be honest with you, that's almost a little bit of a minority because the majority of people that are sick enough, they require admission, do have an extended course. So the people that end up in the, in the secondary hospital uh, are typically people that either were in the ICU or were on the, on the medical floor for some time. 
uh, and they've gotten better enough. They don't really need any kind of major intervention or any kind of major issue, but they're just not well enough to go home or they're not well enough to go back to a nursing home or they're not well enough to go back to a rehab center um, or a group home. And they get transferred uh, to the peripheral site to really just kind of finish, say, the last third of their illness. That's kind of, I'd say, the great majority of the people that are actually there are people that just aren't ready to go home, uh, but they need somewhere to go. Um, And that's kind of, it fits that need uh, really, really well. It's interesting because elsewhere in the state in the spring, there were these other facilities that opened that weren't really used. Do you have any sense whether you're using this secondary facility different than other places did? So we had this open in the spring, and I think there is a substantive difference between the spring and now. The first is we're, thank goodness, we're not seeing that overwhelming number of people who came in and deteriorated very, very quickly um, and actually uh, died. So I, while we still have some fatality, it's nowhere near what we were seeing in the spring. So I think that one of the major differences is that we are treating people substantially better because we know more about this disease. We've learned so much and that we're seeing more people survive. So because more people are surviving, there's more people convalescing. So because there's more people convalescing, there's more people that need this kind of a facility. So I don't know. I think that I don't know that I'm doing anything differently as opposed to um, it's a slightly different uh, uh, disease in terms of what we're treating. I don't know if the disease is different, but the progression is different because of the treatments and everything else. Do you think what you're doing there and what you've done in the spring could provide some insider lessons to other places where it seemed other places they just didn't know what to do with the extra space? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I really hope that we don't get to a point where the rest of the state today would actually have to open peripheral facilities. I really hope we don't get to that point um, um, because, you know, the question really is, you know, we've seen this rapid surge more than a lot of the places in the state. Um, I'm hoping that we're that we're kind of a little bit of an anomaly and not the leading wave. If we are the leading wave uh, and we have to stretch, stretch this out, um, I do think the proper model that we've kind of looked at now is that you can actually convalesce people there in the last third of their illness. And I do think that there's... Uh, uh, you will see a very different progression than you saw in the spring as long as you do certain things. I, I think the idea that it's got to be as close to a hospital as possible because there's p- still people are sick, you know. This idea that we're going to pop up something um, with very limited services and hope to take care of COVID patients, that's tough. Uh, I think the key when you're looking at these facilities is the closer it is to a full hospital service, the better. Uh, And if you can get to 85%, 90%, you can take care of a lot of people. But if you're really nowhere near a regular hospital, it becomes much more difficult. Governor Cuomo has talked about hospitals being able to expand by 50%. You talked about the size of this South Beach psychiatric facility. Would that do it, or are there other places you need to prepare for? Uh, We actually can flex up internally to 50% if need be. Um, um, We've actually opened peripheral ICUs. We've opened uh, peripheral floors. We've done a lot of different things to increase our med surge capacity, uh, repurposed other kinds of units. So we can actually meet that goal even without South Beach Psych. This is essentially um, what this allows us to do is to continue to take care of other folks that still need care. Um, 
but because we have other floors, so for instance, our rehab floor um, is now being used for COVID, COVID patients. Um, that's capacity that we can bring online to take care of the sickest people. Uh, and sadly, temporarily, there's certain services that we just can't do or we're going to do in a different way. Um, and that is just part of what we actually have to do to be able to meet that surge. So we can actually hit that number even without um, uh, South Beach, but South, without South Beach, it would have been very difficult for us to kind of maintain some of the services that are so critical to the people of Staten Island. Another strategy rolled back out by Governor Cuomo this week to prepare for the coming surge in hospitalizations is something called load balance. Keeping an eye on all hospitals in the state and finding ways to share the load of patients, not just within hospital systems, but between hospital systems. Is that happening now or is that something you're looking at? What's the deal with that? Yeah, we actually, we... I, I will tell you that I, I think that one of the best things that came out of the spring surge was we have a much better understanding now of what what you can accomplish with load balancing. Um, um, one of the greatest things that I saw um, in this whole process was um, we actually had a patient um, who was treated in Forest Hills by a Staten Island University Hospital emergency physician He's been in the news a lot, Dr. Choi Pena. He's actually one of our spokespeople. But he volunteered for extra shifts at Forest Hills because we wanted to make sure that everybody was staffed properly, took care of a patient there in the ED, uh, admitted him. We accepted the patient in Staten Island, took the patient to the, to the critical care unit in Staten Island. He spent over a week with us in the critical care unit in Staten Island. We transferred him to South Beach, um, where he convalesced for the last several days of his illness. And Dr. Choi Pena discharged him from the South Beach site as the covering doctor. So that is a real story. That actually happened. Um, and it's one of the neatest stories of the spring for me, number one, because it's a young guy with a family and he did well, thank God, which is always what you want to hear. And number two, that it was an example of how well you can do this if you load balance correctly. So we load balance a lot in the spring. Um, uh, I think, honestly, um, Every Northwell site either was a sender or a receiver during the load balancing challenges of the spring. Uh, we haven't load balanced in major ways yet, uh, and a lot of that is because South Beach Psych uh, opened up. Otherwise, we probably would have had to actually pull that trigger. Um, we are prepared to do it. That's actually part of our regular kind of ar uh, armamentarium. We now track what is going on in every single site. So we are prepared to do that, but right now haven't, haven't needed to, but it's something that's evaluated regularly. Is there kind of a trigger point where if you reach either a certain number of patients or a certain number of patients in ICUs where you say, okay, we reached this level, no more patients come in, we divert? Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's pretty much there's triggers at every hospital. So there's triggers at every hospital that say, okay, uh, we hit ICU capacity, we have more ICU coming in. That's really the most important trigger. We hit full bed capacity. They're starting to hold in the ED uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, it's another trigger. The most important trigger, though, is ICU capacity. You don't ever want the, your sickest patients um, uh, staying somewhere that can't deliver them the highest, po highest quality uh, care that you can. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of – there's a lot of different triggers, but the most important trigger is always uh, capacity to be able to take care of somebody in an ICU setting. One of the other things we've heard talked about this week is staffing shortages. And you talked about what you saw in the spring. Is a, a staffing shortage a concern right now, looking forward? 
I, you know, you're always worried about staffing shortages, especially after you're, after you're expanding. I mean, the reality is it's easy for you and I to sit and talk about the fact that we've, uh, we've um, um, added 25 uh, patients to South Beach, but you have to acknowledge the fact that that's going to be in excess of 10 staff members needed just to maintain that one unit. And I'm not even counting the number of people it takes to maintain the building. I'm just talking about the basic group of people that are needed to take care of that unit, um, from nursing staff to clerks to a physician to PAs. You're well in excess of 10 human beings just to take care of those 20 patients. So you're always worried about staffing. Um, we've actually been able to leverage um, the system in terms of uh, uh, flex staffing very considerably. Uh, if you look at, I believe yesterday, uh, there were actually, I think only one one nurse from Staten Island was actually in the building uh, at South Beach. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think yesterday, um, um, all of them were actually nurses who regularly work in LIJ or Manhasset or uh, other places in Long Island, um, and we were able to shift them around as we have one of the biggest needs now. So. So far, so good on staffing, but if you're going to ask me honestly, am I worried about it? I'm always worried about staffing because that's one of those things where uh, it's the first thing that's going to start to cause you concern if you have the space. So now we have the space, um, so we're doing okay, but it's always a concern. This has been such a, a draining experience, I would imagine, for you and your staff. How, how's your staff doing both physically and psychologically? We spent a lot of time focusing on uh, wellness and kind of uh, staff centering um, and, you know, kind of try to uh, ask people to take care of themselves. Um, the reality is there's no question that there's, you know, uh, some real significant um, feelings of, wow, here we go again. I will say, though, that for, for, for medical providers, um, you never want to feel helpless and you never want to feel that you can't help the people that are coming to you for help. Um, and I do feel that the biggest difference from now to the spring is in the spring, um, you probably saw a video of clap outs from all these different hospitals. We were actually one of the first to do it, if not the first, uh, uh, clap outs of people that were leaving. And the reason that was so poignant is in the first few days, um, people in the hospital were questioning, was anyone ever going to leave? Because everybody who came in was having bad outcomes. And then we started to see the tide turn and we saw some people leave, but still the mortality numbers were so horrible. Um, now we're seeing recoveries. We're seeing people that do well, that we're seeing people that spend uh, quite some time in an ICU, but actually recover. And it, it, the mentality of the provider is just better. So yes, it's, it's a tough, tough time to be a healthcare provider, but that sense of hopelessness that so many people had and that sense of you know, wow, are we ever going to get past this? That's very different. The sense of positivity, the sense of, you know, we're going to help these people is so much better. So while there is that kind of PTSD component to this, um, it's definitely a better experience for providers than it was in the spring. There's been a lot of talk about the post-Thanksgiving surge, seven to ten days out, which is what we're approaching now. What is your sense of that? Um, we did see a little bit of a surge of patients in the kind of that five day, which is when you first would expect to see a wave. Um, I would expect that you're going to see an increase in cases um, post Thanksgiving. I do think that people weren't necessarily socially distancing to the level that maybe was uh, advisable. Um, uh, so I do think you will probably see a little bit more of a bump. Uh, 
I, I would love to. I'd love to hope that that wasn't true, but I, I do think uh, I think most most experts would be surprised if it didn't happen. Staten Island is one of the hot spots across the state, and certainly in the city. Why do you think that is? You know, it's a great question. Um, why is it? Um, so Staten Island has some of the highest rates of underlying conditions, highest rates of smoking, highest rates of uh, of obesity. Um, highest rates of pre-existing conditions. So I do think that that will ab- absolutely play a role um, um, in kind of why we're seeing more hospitalized cases and why we're seeing a lot more activity than you do across the board. Um, it's, you know, it's an interesting question. And I think the almost the, the, the corresponding question is, are we higher or are we just a little bit earlier? Because uh, I, I think as the rest of the city starts to rise, I do wonder – um, are we seeing Staten Island as the leading wave or is Staten Island an outlier? If it's an outlier, I think this, it's, it's going to be interesting to see as we analyze this why that is, uh, or is it just a leading wave and you're going to start to see Brooklyn and some of these other areas rise up to kind of meet that number. And from what I'm seeing in the data, there's some evidence to suggest that Staten Island is really the leading wave and not an outlier, but we'll see. With that said, Christmas, the holidays are around the corner. What's your message to residents? Well, uh, the message I think is very, very clear. I'm hoping that this the idea that people really need to wear masks at all times when they're around people they, that they don't uh, that they don't social, that they don't uh, live with, um, and they need to socially distance themselves as much as they possibly can. Um, there's a lot of attention that's been brought to this idea of how many people can I gather with. I know there was a whole hullabaloo over 10 or 12 or 13 or whatever the number was going to be. And I would actually uh, advise people to think in terms of households. How many different households, meaning where you put your head down on your pillow at night, are in the same room at the same time? Uh, and if you're above two, that's a problem. Uh, even if you're at two and you're not wearing a mask, that's a problem. But if you have five people from five different households, it's probably more dangerous than 12 people from two different households. Um, so you have to be very wary of how many different locations you're dragging people in with. And that's the most important aspect of social distancing. So if you have a Christmas with uh, uh, only eight people, but there are eight people from four different households, that's a dangerous thing to do as opposed to, you know, uh, a large gathering where one or two households that you may want to, you still want to be careful, uh, but, you know, you, I would actually say social distancing and mass, but just be wary of how many households are in a given location. You know, we saw uh, a story in some video of a bar owner on Staten Island who thought that uh, he shouldn't have to have these restrictions. He was opening his bar. He's not alone. There are others out there. What do you say to somebody like that? You know, I guess what I, I, you know, it's interesting. I think we all want the same things. I think that uh, nobody wants, nobody more than me wants to be able to go out for a nice dinner and a glass of wine uh, with my wife. Um, um, but I think the reality of the situation that we're in is the fastest way for us to actually get back to a normal functioning society is to all just accept the fact that we're going to socially distance and we're going to do this together for, it would really probably only take a few weeks. If we all just got together and said we were going to do this meticulously for a few weeks, we're going to get there. So I, I, I agree. I, I would love to see everybody go back to work. I'd love to see everybody get there. But I think the path there is what we have to all agree upon. And the path there involves wearing masks. 
um, and it involves trying to socially distance for a period of time so we can get past this episode. Um, and if you're trying to get your business open and you're sitting there not wearing a mask, then you're only hurting yourself. Chuck, you've been very kind with your time. Is there anything you want to add that we didn't talk about? Yeah, I would just make sure uh, it's important to me that the population of Staten Island specifically and understands that, you know, we're still here to take care of them. We are starting to see a drop in non-COVID kinds of folks that are coming to the hospital. And that always makes me very worried. You know, um, there was a significant uptick in the spring of people who were dying at home of non-COVID conditions because they were afraid to come to the hospital. Um, People need to be aware of the fact that we have a track for non-COVID conditions. We will keep you separate from folks that are coming in to be evaluated for COVID and we'll still take care of you. We have a way for you to get into the building. We have places to put you where you're not going to be cohabitated. Um, And we really want to make sure that people understand that uh, if you're afraid of COVID so much that you wind up dying at home from a heart attack, you didn't do yourself any favors. On to vaccines. Uh, the first vaccine delivery to New York will be 170,000. If all safety and efficacy approvals are granted, those doses will arrive on December 15th. New York, like the other states across the country, has embraced the CDC recommendations to prioritize health care workers in this first wave of vaccines. We wanted to know how that might work. Susan Mashney is from Mount Sinai Health Systems, and laid it out for us. Do you expect to get anything in the first batch? We do. We are very hopeful that we will be part of the first allocation, uh, hoping to get um, some vaccine at uh, each of the seven facilities where we have the the ultra-low um, freezers, uh, expecting that we'll be able to get some probably more at the Mount Sinai Hospital where we have two freezers and some at each of our other facilities. We want to vaccinate first our healthcare workers um, and essential workers that have exposure in our emergency department and intensive care unit and our EMS workers. So um, when I talk about the healthcare workers and essential workers, it would be everything from our physicians, our nurses, respiratory therapists, um, as well as folks like environmental service workers and and uh, and even food delivery workers, um, pharmacy technicians and pharmacists that deliver medications into the into the emergency department and to the intensive care unit. We want to make certain that we vaccinate first the folks that have exposure to uh, the virus, especially aerosolized virus, uh, and particularly folks that might not have the opportunity to properly doff and don PPE um, before an inadvertent exposure. So, um, you know, that we're pretty much honing in first on the ED, EMS, and ICU. Do you have any idea how long it'll take before all of those people in that first group will get a vaccine? That's an excellent question. So, um, you know, it's a sort of a moving target. We were, we what we know is that the Pfizer vaccine will be sent out. Um, the minimal amount that they'll be able to send out is 1,000 doses or actually 975 doses in a pallet. Um, so we're hoping that we'll get several pallets to Mount Sinai Hospital and then at least one pallet to each of our other hospitals. Um, so we're, we're hoping that we can offer the vaccine um, to those high-risk employees, which, you know, is 
somewhere around the area between 12,000 and 14,000 employees. Hopefully within the first month or so of us having um, allocations, um, and and we'll just do the best we can do. So we'll, um, you know, try and what the state has asked us is when they allocate us vaccine that we try and use it within 10 days. Um, so we're doing the best we can do to to anticipate setting up as many vaccine pods as it takes to be able to um, use up the vaccine that they send us. We've heard that the side effects include symptoms that might not be serious, but make people feel sick. So is there a plan to stagger it so not everybody in the emergency department's getting it the same day and you don't have people calling out sick the next day? How is that going to work? Right. So, you know, we know from the studies that only about 2 to 3% of people get enough symptomatology that would be you know, as an example, a fever or something that might cross-react with when we screen our, uh, the symptoms that we that we try and screen out when we screen our employees every day for COVID. So we will be making an effort to, um, to allocate it out uh, and be smart about the way that we administer to different groups of people within the emergency department or ICU or EMS workers so that everybody's not out on the same day. We're lucky, um, you know, one benefit of the, the way that we staff the emergency room as an example is many of the, many of the nurses and other staff members um, work like three 12-hour shifts. Um, so, you know, they have days off in between when they work. So we'll try and be strategic about scheduling in that way. Um, and then we're also going to be using, you know, our, our volunteer staff to help us coordinate uh, the effort to sort of spread the love initially to make certain that we're not vaccinating, you know, every physician from the ED or in one day or every nurse from the ICU in another day. Do you have any sense whether people want to get the vaccine or if there's some kind of resistance among staffers? So we're, you know, we're very concerned about vaccine confidence. Some of our researchers are actually working on a, a study right now around vaccine confidence, especially in healthcare workers across the city, uh, really trying to answer the question that you've posed to me. I think our best guess right now, based on initial findings from that study, as well as somewhat anecdotal type um, questionnaires and whatnot, is probably about 60 to 70 percent, you know, hopefully. Um, for our physician group will be accepting of the vaccine initially. And then, you know, the other healthcare workers, including nurses and other um, ancillary personnel, may be as low as, as 35 to 40%. Uh, so our job is to provide as much education as possible in a way that is, is well received by our employee group around the safety and efficacy of the vaccine so that folks can make an educated decision for themselves. Um, and then really bringing to light some of the, the good um, data that's being promoted or, or shown through the initial studies um, and help to promote uh, vaccine confidence. Susan Mashney from Mount Sinai Health Systems here in New York City. She does say that for their employees at the moment, the vaccine will not be mandatory. It will be up to individual health care workers to choose whether or not to get it. Eight Eighty In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio Eight Eighty. The executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Sheld.
If you like what you hear and learn something, we encourage you to pass it on. Send a link to friends and family, and we appreciate that support. Subscribe so you don't miss a week. And as always, please be safe. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.